Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. It's great to be back from our two-week break. And this week, in the kick, we've got the tale of two very different ultra record attempts. It's also BQ season, so we're going to talk about the time you really had to run to get into next year's Boston Marathon. And we have the story of an alleged thief who picked the wrong people to mess with, otherwise known as a cross-country team. We also bring you the final episode of Project Build Strength, otherwise known as executive editor Tish Hamilton's quest to run less and cross-train more over the summer. But first, my interview with writer, runner, mother, and student Kristen Armstrong. She talks about how running helped her through the pain and stress of her divorce in 2003 from cyclist Lance Armstrong. She also talks about the beauty of what she calls intentional suffering and also the joys that come with having great running partners or wingmen, as she calls them. I've been on runs with her and I've started talking about something, not realizing as I started the topic that it was going to a place of complete tenderness and vulnerability to the point where I can't, I really can't breathe. And it's almost like a panic attack sometimes, but not completely. It's just where you, your breath catches and you can't, you have to stop. And it's just this cool understanding when you're going along with someone who's your wingman and they know, like they can tell that where the conversation has turned has gone into a place of very delicate waters and it's so beautiful to know that that person besides you gets that and they know the hitch in your breathing or the hitch in your step and they're like oh wow we can walk a little bit like yeah we can walk a little bit thanks for joining us stay with us kristen armstrong has been writing for runner's world since 2004 nearly as long as she's been running. She currently writes the Mile Markers column for runnersworld.com, and she's written several columns and features for the magazine over the years. She's also the author of several books, including one called Mile Markers and another called Happily Ever After, Walking with Peace and Courage Through a Year of Divorce. I've always loved Kristen's unique, honest voice, and these days she's doing a lot of things, and including writing, but also running and training for yet another marathon, being a mom to her three kids, and getting her master's degree in counseling at St. Edward's University in Austin, Texas, where she lives. The first Runner's World story Kristen ever wrote was one of the first that came to my attention when I started this job at Runner's World over 13 years ago. We started this conversation by remembering that story, which was also the beginning of her writing career. Kristen Armstrong, thank you for joining us on the Runner's World Show. It has been, how long has it been? We haven't talked in a really long time. You and I have known each other since 2003 or 2004. That's right. When you started running, I was pretty new on this job. And one day I just got this story emailed. This is in the early days of email even, I think. I I don't know if it was that long ago, but it was long ago. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm really dating both of us here. Yeah, be careful. But I got this story, this this fully written, fully realized, over the transom story sent in by Kristen Armstrong to Runner's World. And it was one of the best 
stories I'd ever received over the transom before. It was funny and it was true and it had voice and it was authentic. And it was the first piece that you wrote for Runner's World. We ended up publishing it in the magazine in our August 2004 issue, basically as you wrote it. But that's that's how we were introduced to each other. I actually want to ask you to go back to those early days yeah. and talk a little bit about your start in running, which was close to your start in writing, uh, and what was going on in your life at the time. Why, why did you start running in the first place? My start in running was 2003 was the year that my marriage fell apart. Um, I got divorced that year, and I had a couple friends who noticed that I was um, not sleeping very well, not eating, just kind of looking like a brittle shell. And both of these dear friends of mine are marathoners and triathletes, and they're they're extremely athletic women and very strong. And they they de- decided that what I needed to do at that time was run a marathon, which is a funny thing to say to somebody who's too skinny and tired. But they knew that it would make me tired, and I would sleep, and they knew I would be very hungry, and they knew <laughs> they knew that that would actually be probably a really good thing for me. And it was. It was an amazing experience because what I didn't understand at that time was that um, what running really does for you is it gives you so much more than just the physical part, the the strength and the endurance and all that. But it became kind of a metaphor for me at that time, thinking if I can run five miles, wow, it's the longest I've ever run. I can run 10 miles, 15, 18, 20. And it was just this enormous confidence boost at a time when I was feeling really low. So the training experience was amazing and it really helped me that year. And I got very healthy and strong and had recovery through running for a lot of that grief and, and just the stress of that time. And then the piece that I sent to you, it was funny because originally it was a thank you note that I wrote to the two of them, my two friends that I ran with. And I just Hmm. kind of chronicled our experience and wanted them to know how much it meant to me. And both of them knew I liked to write, but they they said to me, they go, you wrote this? And I said, yeah. They said, is this how you always write? And I go, I I guess so. (laughs) I mean, it's my voice. I guess that's what I, you know, yes. And they said, this is so beautiful. If you don't send this into Runner's World, then I will. And I thought the last thing I want those two crazy girls doing is trying to promote me in any way at that time. So I just, (laughs) I sent, I changed it a little bit. So it wasn't a thank you. And then I just sent it randomly into Runner's World, which is so funny because now when I think about that after many years of writing all kinds of freelance work, things don't usually work out that way. Just a random email, you know? No, they don't. And believe me, I've gotten lots of pieces and very, very few of them are as good as what you sent us. And I, one of my favorite sentences from that piece, I've got it right here, was toward the end. And and you started the piece by saying, I am not an athlete. Yes. And you, t- <clears throat> you wrote about how, uh, for a lot of your adult life anyway, you helped an athlete, which of course was your husband at the time, Lance, mm-hmm. during his cycling career. You were not an athlete yourself, though. You enabled him to be an athlete and to help him in in countless ways to excel the way he did. And toward the end of what you wrote, you wrote that in my past life, I gave everything I had to make a dream possible for someone else. 
On this day, I gave everything I had to make a dream possible for myself. So after all these years, you've continued to run. And I just wonder how you look back on on hearing that passage that you wrote in 2004. How does that sound to you now? And do you think about what running has given you any differently today? I mean, those words to hear, hear them back again. I mean, they, they kind of make me feel emotional, but they also, I mean, they're true and they ring true. They were, they were true then they're true now. And I think that something that I didn't understand at the onset of becoming a runner was just how much the identity of being a runner and what, what that means um, to your head, to your heart, to your spirit, and what that means in terms of community that you have with, with all these other amazing people who are also out there. I mean, it, it has been a huge part of my life since that time. I mean, it's, it's a regular part of my life, like a habit, but it's also something far deeper and more profound for me. And I've, I continue on probably with the same, oddly enough, the same enthusiasm and excitement and reverence for it that I had back then. I'm still kind of in awe of it sometimes. It just shows itself to me in new ways all the time. And one thing, of course, that is different today is that uh, your three children are older now, and one of them is starting high school and is starting cross country. She's a runner. She's a runner. What's that like? (laughs) You wrote your most recent blog for us uh, and mentioned her in, in the blog, but do you see yourself in her or do you see completely different things? I have been so careful the way I, I've treaded around the subject of running with her because I've seen a lot of parents ruin something for someone else due to being overly enthusiastic, especially with a teenager, you know? So um, since she was little, she has been an incredible runner. There have been times in the past where she did girls on the run and she's done some other fun things, um, kids triathlons and different things over the years. And she's always just had fun with it and, and she's always just loved it. And so to me, if she loves it, that's what I, I, I'm excited about more than whatever her performance is. But even when she was little, I remember a particular race that that she won the whole thing. And it was so shocking to me to see, it's like, wow, that she's fast. So she's, we're not similar as far as running goes. She's far more talented and skilled at running than I am. But I think that I see in her a similar, um, the start of a love for it. And I see in her just how it mitigates her anxiety and takes away so much of the pressure of being teenage girl to just be able to step outside of yourself and just your body can just be something that you enjoy and push and it's kind of an escape from all the pressures of being that particular age and adolescence and I'm I'm so happy for her so that that first piece that you wrote for us you wrote about running um, your first marathon in Dallas the Dallas White Rock marathon mm-hmm. how many marathons have you done now and what are the what are the athletic goals or achievements that you look back on and are most proud of I think I've done about 13 marathons now 
Oh, that you're one of those right. people who loses count of how many. Marathons well, I could go back. Okay. I could go back through them in my mind because I can recall them that way easier than I can make a count. Um, yeah. But um, I think probably the thing that I'm most proud of is the completion of a 50 miler. Um, that was a, a trail race that I did um, several years ago, and that to me was that was something that I was really excited about. And it was, it was an uncertain outcome and it's always daunting to try something where it's not just, Oh, am I going to make my time or am I going to qualify for Boston or am I going to finish? It's, it's more like a, can I actually even do this? Like what I'm taking on, I'm not certain that I can do that. And to try something that you aren't certain that you can even do it at all is, is really exciting and keeps things kind of fresh and new. I'm also pretty excited about the fact that I just turned 45 and just qualified for Boston. So that makes me feel good too. Like I still got it. (laughs) Sort of. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. You've BQ'd. So what, what number BQ is that? Cause I know you've run Boston before. I think this will be my fourth. And you're going to be there in April, you think? Well, I'm still waiting for Paige to qualify cause she's my wingman and we normally like to go do these things together. She, um, I think I got to to register the week before her. So now she's still waiting to find out if she got in. All right. So you mentioned Paige and you mentioned your wingmen. And I know Cassie is another one of your wingmen. I have met the whole crew. Yes, you have. What is it about running with other people? What makes a good running partner? What, who's, what makes a good wing wingman or wingwoman, as it were? Well, I think that relationship is so particular because that person not only do you need to be able to count on them because they show up you know at odd hours in the morning and and they show up for you in a a million different ways and you for them so you have um, this person that will meet you at the appointed time but then they are also the person that hangs with you when you have a you know a run where you bonk or you um, you have a rough time in your life and you're just still trying to climb the hills and make it happen and that person beside you and the way that they um, just their constant companionship next to you whether it's quiet or whether they're talking and motivating you or whether they just have good bs so they can make miles kind of disappear which Paige definitely does she tells funny uh-huh. stories and we talk about everything under the sun and i think um, most of what i love about those long runs or the thought of training for a marathon or an ultra marathon is just the guaranteed time that I know I have with her that's set apart. And it's, it's like a sacred time to me. So what are those runs like? Can, can you sort of bring us along, you know, as, as listeners and give us a sense in the way that you do when you're writing so well, you, when you write about running, you do such a good job of evoking, um, the the feeling that you're having or the thoughts that you're experiencing and and what does it sound like <laughs> to be on a run with you and your wingman um it sounds like footfalls two sets of size nines maybe nine and a half by now um, it sounds like <laughs> breathless it sounds like laughter sometimes cackling sometimes doubled over cackling in the middle of a hill and it's dark outside and you can see lights go on in the house next to you and you think "Uh uh-oh we got to keep it down Um, (laughs) sometimes it's that i've been on runs with her and i've 
started talking about something, not realizing as I started the topic that it was going to a place of complete tenderness and vulnerability to the point where I can't, I really can't breathe. And it's almost like a panic attack sometimes, but not completely. It's just where you, your breath catches and you can't, you have to stop. And it's just this cool understanding when you're going along with someone who's your wingman and they know, like they can tell that where the conversation is turned is gone into a place of very delicate waters. And it, it's so beautiful to know that that person besides you gets that and they know the hitch in your breathing or the hitch in your step. And they're like, oh, wow, we can walk a little bit. Like, yeah, we can walk a little bit. I've referred to it before as like uh, my friendship with her is like a moving fortress. I know that every single thing we talk about is totally discreet and confidential, and we're so far beyond the point of having to clarify that. Um, and we can talk, and she can. she's also earned the right over all these years that she can challenge me or ask me anything or um, question me in ways that maybe other friends I might be defensive or I might be, I might hide or, but with her, I don't. Like she can say anything to me because she's been with me over all these miles. She's earned the right. And that is, that's sacred. Yeah. One of the themes that you have written about quite a bit is suffering and, and finding joy in suffering. Yes. One of my favorite metaphors. Why does running help with that? How does it help you with it? Well, because I think um, in our culture and for me personally and what I see all around me is that people want to avoid suffering, not just suffering, but we want to avoid discomfort of any kind. We're such a a comfortable society. So I think what happens sometimes in life when we get a curveball or something happens, we get news we don't like, we have no idea what to do with that because we're so unfamiliar with suffering. We don't want anything to do with it. We will numb it. We will make ourselves busy. We will try to go around it. We will deny it. But to me, one of the beautiful gifts about running is that you are on a regular basis intentionally touching on suffering, sometimes more than others. I mean, you can push as much as you want and suffer as much as you want, but you're doing it on purpose. And to me, I think that's one of the things about like a marathon, for example. My first marathon was in a very deep place of personal pain. And to come through that time in my life and come out on the other side, to me, when I run marathons now, I'm not in the same place anymore, but it's almost like being able to take my finger and touch on that one place that you know hurts, but you don't want to forget about it. You want to remember that you can move through that or you want to be able to reflect back on those situations and see your strength and see the strength of the people around you and see how far you've come. And when you can go back and intentionally suffer, I think it makes you so much more equipped to handle whatever comes that you don't know or whatever is currently going on. It gives you the strength and it gives you the flexibility and it gives you the endurance to face the things rather than avoid them. Yeah. Intentionally suffering. That's, that's interesting. Do you feel like that's one of the main reasons that you run to intentionally suffer and in a way that's, you know, relatively safe? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think people can take anything too far, but 
for me, I, I sometimes will run like that. Like I, if I know that something's really bothering me or weighing on my mind, I will take that and on purpose, I will go find, you know, there's a, a few hills in Austin that I, I can seek out sometimes when I'm kind of on a mission. And I can tell that something is weighing on me and I know that I'm suffering on the inside. And sometimes the only way for me to get that out is to put an equal measure of suffering on the outside. And then I reach kind of a, a place of maybe equilibrium of some kind. Like, okay, there, I, I tapped into it and I found some relief. It just, it's hard to describe it, but I think that that's probably the best way. It's like I want to work something out in a physical way that is trapped in me in an emotional or mental way. Yeah. Another piece that you wrote for us a, a few years ago, it was uh, right after all the news came out about your ex-husband Lance and the doping in his cycling career and you know all that stuff sort of came crashing down and all his sponsors pulled out and you know it was obviously a big story and you, you wrote a piece that talked about it a little bit, but you included a, a quote from Leonard Cohen. You remember that quote? Yeah, there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. Right. I love that. Why do you love that quote so much? Because I think much like um, how we view suffering, I think we view brokenness a lot the same way. And I think that there is a beauty to brokenness and there is revelation that comes from that there's transformation there's something really beautiful that comes in that and through that and just past that and i think that that quote sums it up in a beautiful way there's going to have to be some cracks if you want the light so how do you feel broken or how did you feel broken at that time I think most of all, I felt broken for my kids because I felt broken for them once before when we got divorced, but they were three and one and one. And they're, they were very young at that time. But then later on, when you go, when to go through something that's hard and public like that and all the things that go with it, for me, I just really, I broke for them during that time. I mean, Luke was in middle school. That's not fun. Yeah. So how about you? Again, that was a couple, few years ago. Do you feel less broken now than you did at that time? Yes, definitely. I think I feel um, like my children are doing amazing. And so for me, in my heart, that always sets me at a, at a level point. My dad always says, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And I was like, yeah, there's something to that. So when they're happy and well, um, that sets me free to be doing all the things in my life and being happy and well also. So I I feel that way too. And I'm in a great relationship right now with a really neat man and in school and running and working and just peaceful. And how about Lance? You guys are still close in the way that you are both involved in your kids' lives, right? Yes, yes, definitely. What's that? What's that like? That that I imagine has to be hard for anyone. I mean, I think it's always probably more difficult at the beginning of any divorce situation, but over it's been 
so many years now. It's been 13 years, I guess. So the children are older, we're older. There's a lot of understanding and years spent in getting to a place where I feel like we are uh, happy and peaceful and our kids are really doing well. And so that feels to me like a good place. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, after all the things that you've experienced and all the ways that running has helped you learn about yourself, you have to have a lot of running mantras, right? And as someone who's a writer who thinks about words as deeply as you do, what do you have any favorite running mantras? I don't really have a like a mantra that I say over and over in my head, but there are a lot of times when I take an intention with me when I go out for a run. Sometimes there's something I want to take it for a run and I tell myself, you can think about this and for as long as this run is, but you're not coming home with this. You're going to leave it somewhere out there. And those are the times where I might pick up a stone or something, or if I'm at the beach, I'll pick up a shell or I'll pick up something to hold in my hand. And then when I get to a point where I I think I need to be done thinking about whatever it is that's weighing on me, I'll just put it down or I'll throw it or I'll do something. And I'm like, I'm not coming home with that. I'm coming home lighter. And that, that's a really, that's a, a very therapeutic thing for me to do. The idea of just leaving a burden somewhere else. I like that. Well, in closing, I want to ask you about one other theme that has come up in your writing a lot, and that's grace. And, uh, a word in, that's very close to you. It's also the name of one of your daughters. Yes. What is grace to you, and how does it connect to running? Well, grace is a huge huge theme and a huge um, subject and to try to condense that into something that can be like in a snippet it's almost impossible it's grace to me it's not only my daughter but it's something so mysterious and transcendent and it's just the gift of of letting yourself and letting other people off the hook and just accepting life and yourself and situations just as they are and feeling that it's enough. There's a quote by a writer named Michael Singer that I love so much. And it says, everything will be okay as soon as you are okay with everything. <laughs> and to me, that's grace. It's like you can't really explain it, but it's those, it's just those moments where you feel like you can either accept yourself and connect back to yourself or you can root in the moment in your life and be okay with somebody else or you can even just sit with someone in their discomfort without having to fix anything without having to change anything at all and it's still okay and to me that that theme whether it's in my relationships or um, in my running just trying to achieve a state of grace for myself where I'm enough. Um, it's, it's a beautiful way to try and live. It's like trying to live gratefully, trying to live gracefully. Those things matter to me because I want to treat myself that way and treat other people that way with grace. Well, as always, Kristen, very well said. Thank you. It's been too long and it's been great to talk with you. 
thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's always a treat to talk to you. You can listen to my full interview with Kristen Armstrong, which includes a great mental and emotional tip that she gave me for getting through the toughest miles of a marathon. And also read the first story she wrote for Runner's World at runnersworld.com slash audio. For the past few months, we've been following along with executive editor Tish Hamilton as she embarked on a rather weird, at least weird for her, mission to run less and cross-train more this summer. It's weird because Tish is a bit of a legend around the office. She's a longtime runner who's run 51 marathons, including 12 Bostons. All of us who know Tish know she'd rather run than do just about anything else. But she spent the summer months doing a bunch of other things instead. Things like riding her bike, hiking, swimming, going to the gym. She did all this non-running stuff with one big goal in mind to get healthy and strong in time to start training for the New York City Marathon in November. Just as summer was ending, producer Christine Fennessy caught up with Tish to see how she was feeling. Christine expected to hear that Tish was feeling strong, reinvigorated, and off to a good start in her training for marathon number 52. But that wasn't exactly what she heard. On a gorgeous day at the end of August, I met Tish out on the looped cinder track behind Runner's World HQ here in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. It was the lunch hour, a time when Tish is typically out running or cycling. But we're walking, uh, which is like highly unusual for both of us (laughs) to not be pedaling a bike or running or otherwise moving as fast as we possibly can. And it's it's noon on, on a Wednesday, and that's that's also significant. Yes, on at noon on Wednesdays, our resident uh, coach Bud Coates, a four-time Olympic trials marathon qualifier, holds speed sessions for anybody in the company who'd like to come out and do them. And uh, I unfortunately have not been able to do them this summer at all, and and I'm just walking. It's a little bit. Uh, it's a little hard to, to walk around when you see your colleagues uh, racing around <laughs> doing intervals and getting super fit. But here I am walking and trying to be a good sport about it. So why haven't you been able to do this? Well, so when um, you and I first started talking, I was cutting back on running and we decided to call it Project Build Strength, yeah. I think. And... Um, you know, I didn't really want to tell you this, but um, I, I was dealing with some pain in the hamstring area. Uh, and I don't want to call it an injury. Here's the deal. That sounds like this whole Project Build Strength thing started after Tish ran a pretty bad Boston Marathon in April. She realized she'd been going too hard for too long, and she really needed to take a break. She made a plan to run less and cycle, hike, and hit the gym more. And her goal was to get strong and healthy by the end of the summer, just in time to start training for the New York City Marathon in November. In previous episodes, I tagged along with Tish on a bike ride and a hike, keeping tabs on her progress. She is, after all, a die-hard runner who has a very tough time not running all of the time. All summer, I figured she'd been running, just not very much. Now, 
I was hearing something different. I talked to a chiropractor I go to a lot, and I talked to Bud Coates, our resident coach, and they all said the same thing, (laughs) which was stop running. (laughs) Which is Uh, oh oh dear, it's a very very difficult thing for me to hear. So I actually I decided um, to take a month completely off running and do everything else. I, I can't imagine, actually. That's, that's impressive. I did not know that. So now, Tish was on her gradual comeback from her month off of running, a month that I didn't actually know was happening. And instead of ramping up her weekly mileage at this point to peak weeks of 40 to 50 miles, Tish is on a super conservative, every-other-day run-walk plan. She's got orders from Coach Bud to do these run-walk sessions for no longer than 20 minutes. On alternate days, she can do stuff like walk. So, not surprisingly, this all has her a little worried about running New York. And now this is sort of tricky because here we are close to the end of August, and I've signed up for New York City Marathon, and I've paid, you know, we have to pay to enter races here, even if you work at Runner's World. It costs like $270. Um, and I don't want to, I hate to sound so cheap, but I, I, you know, I don't want to give that up. So, so I'm like, can I run the marathon when I'm doing like three minutes of running and, and 30 seconds of walking? Um, and, and Bud is just like, he's like really making me live in the moment and not think about, not think about that. Just like take it one, one day at a time. So that's what I'm trying to do, trying to be zen about it, which is very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, especially when you're out here. I mean, it is a beautiful day, and we've got three of our coworkers coming up behind us who are all running very fast, so maybe we should move over a little bit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the weather's perfect today. It's not, like, too hot, and um, but, like, beautiful sunny day, and we're both out here walking. <laughs> yeah, walking. As Tish and I are meandering along... Runners occasionally sprint past us. They're all doing Coach Bud's lunchtime speed work session. Oh, there goes Kit Fox tearing up the track. Can you hear that? Here come the rest of them. And yes, it does make me wish that I were running with them for sure. Uh, this is this is like this is torture to come out <laughs> and walk around a track while your colleagues are doing intervals. Okay, so Tish's summer didn't quite pan out the way we thought it would. Still, running less or not at all in this case, made her realize she really does love riding her bike. She's racked up a thousand miles this summer, and she's come to love logging epic four-hour rides with her friends. When we last had Tish on the show, she was training for a 50-mile hike in the High Sierras in California. She was doing stuff like hauling her groceries home in her backpack. Hiking, however, was a harder sell for Tish. It just didn't deliver the endorphin boost that she craves and that she gets when she runs and when she rides. And I worried that maybe she would go out on this trek and sort of miss out on the scenery too focused on whether or not she was getting a good workout. But I'm happy to report that she loved every minute of it. As we've been talking, runners have been continually blowing by us. Oh, here they come. All right, Chris. Good job. You got it. 136. All right, man. One quarter to go. To take a whole month off running 
um, is a huge deal without like an in you know full-on injury like I'm not in a boot I don't have a broken leg you know I just have like sort of aches and pains that, that act up so it's 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 a big deal both physically and mentally um, I, I like to pretend like it doesn't bother me <laughs> that I'm not running and I see people, you know, it's now, it's, so we're coming up on September, and you see the people who are starting to train for marathons. And, and I definitely have, you know, that kind of run envy. Here comes Kit. Uh-oh, Kit, Kit is throwing up. <laughs> wow, does this have to happen often in Swedework? Kit has thrown up before, yes. Kit, you okay there? Oh, I'm dying. Are you throwing up? No, oh. I'm good. That was just excessive sweat falling off of your face? Yes. Did it look like I was throwing up? <laughs> You're making awful noises. Oh, God. <laughs> Woo! I'm done, though. That was terrible. What was it, a half? No, it was uh, six 400s oh. at 5K to mile pace. Okay. I don't do anything like that, but that sounds horrible. And is this the longest break that you've you've had pretty much since you've started running? Um, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, how does the rest of your body feel just given the fact that you've spent several months sort of getting it strong in these different areas with cycling and hiking and, and doing some of the gym work that you've been doing? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I've, I've been trying to stay away from the scale because, you know, that's upsetting. <laughs> I did weigh myself after I came back from the backpacking trip, though, because, you know, that was a week without ice cream. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a good number. And sure enough, I had lost a couple of pounds. So that was fun. <laughs> um, uh, and now, I'm, of course, I'm all joking, but what I do notice, of course, and this is not a surprise, but it's always a delight, is to find how much stronger your legs are getting and, you know, your quads are getting. And I noticed that with tightness and some clothes, but I'm really cool with that because I know, I know it's strength. You know, I noticed the, my arms are, you know, probably slightly less skinny than they used to be, and that's an okay thing, too. Um... It will be interesting to see, you know, okay, so I'm working with Bud Coates in this plan to start getting back in shape to see whether or not I can cross the finish line in the New York City Marathon on this minimal, minimal training. It'll be interesting to see if, if when I start shifting back into running, you know, how the um, bike fitness and the hike fitness and the little bit of swim fitness I built up, how that plays into the running. I'm really curious. It's an experiment. What have you learned through this whole experience? Well, taking a month off running, now this is going to surprise you, Christine, but taking a month off running will not kill you. <laughs> um, and you don't have to go exercise like a complete maniac every single day either. Uh, but you can if you want to. <laughs> so, you know, like I had to try to find the positive in all of this. I, you know, I actually, I think it's a really good thing to, to try something different. It doesn't mean that it's easy, and I mean that both physically and mentally. So physically, you know, you can't just, like, dive in and start biking as hard as you rode. I mean, as hard as you ran if you've never ridden a bike, right? You have to, you have to get your body used to that as well. I think it's safe to say that Tish is an obsessed runner. And she's taking all this downtime pretty well for an obsessed runner. But I wanted to know, was running for her about getting better or about putting yourself through a certain amount of rigor every day? In other words, 
catching that endorphin high? Actually, so I, that, that word better is a really great, um, a great question because you really have to, as you age as a runner, obviously, you know, how you define better has got to change because better can't always equal faster. It can equal faster up to a certain point. Um, but then you got to figure out what does better mean and, and, and also like what is good enough, you know? So this summer better has meant doing other things. You know, I, I think you have to, um, redefine, um, better <laughs> for yourself as you go through, through your years. So yes, I would prefer to run every single day, but but the reality is I also would prefer to run into my 80s and 90s. So I got to figure out a way, other things for me to do to um, stay fit and, <laughs> and sane. <laughs> so we have to think up something else that, um, that's going to be satisfying, right? It can't all be about uh, performance. Um, and, and that's something that evolves over everybody's um, lifetime, hopefully, right? Uh, you know, I would wish that for everybody, that, that we could all run our whole lives. I recorded this piece with Tish at the end of August, and I ran with her for the first time in ages, just last week. After following Coach Bud's run-walk plan, she has now completed a 15-mile long run. It wasn't fast, but she did it. And she did it pain-free. So yes, Tish is still targeting the New York City Marathon. But a funny thing about Tish running more these days, she's starting to really miss her bike. If you missed out on any of our earlier segments about Tish Hamilton's Project Build Strength, we've got them all listed for you on runnersworld.com audio. And now it's time for The Kick. Here's producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. All right, Kit Fox, it's been a few weeks since we've done a kick. I miss and you, Brian. There's a lot, a lot to catch up on, um, so I'm glad you're here. I want to start in the world of ultra running. We mm-hmm. had on The Kick two weeks ago about Carl Meltzer and his attempt at the Appalachian Trail record. That is concluded. Tell us what happened there. Breaking news. Um, Carl Meltzer is the new through-hike supported record holder on the Appalachian Trail. He finished in 45 days, 22 hours, and 38 minutes. And just a reminder um, for those that don't know, the Appalachian Trail is just over 2,000 miles, highly technical, very hilly terrain from uh, Maine to Georgia. He averaged just over 50 miles a day, and he broke um, ultra runner Scott Jurek's record by just about 10 hours, which yeah. is actually pretty impressive considering how difficult this Yeah, run Jurek is. did it last year and set the record. Meltzer came out and did it this year. And it, you, you talked to him, and in your story, it seemed like he had a, like, a scientific, methodical approach exactly. to, to get this record. Yeah, whereas Jurek um, it, admitted himself last year that he had like no experience he kind of just made things up on the fly um only had about 30 miles on the trail before his attempt uh Meltzer had, just knows the trail front and back he's actually attempted the record twice in 2008 and 2014 and he kept just like this methodical marching pace the whole way through so there like there really wasn't that much drama mm-hmm. 
I mean, unless he fell or something, there was really no question he was going to break the record for about the last week or so. Yeah, and Scott Jurek actually helped him at the end, right? Yeah, Scott Jurek came out for the last week to crew Carl, and one of the coolest things is that the last 31 miles, Jurek was the pacer. So it was mm-hmm. just Jurek and Meltzer kind of out on the trail, catching up as old friends. Um, and so basically the person who got the best seat in the house to watch the record fall was the previous record holder himself, Scott. Moving on to a different ultra-running story. We were watching this story earlier this year. A British ultra-runner, his name is Robert Young. He was attempting the record to run across the United States in the fastest time. And uh, he hit some snags along the way snags, during that attempt, right? If you will. Yeah, um, to start with, so the, the cross-country record is is pretty coveted at about 46 days. And uh, so this British ultra runner, Robert Young, decided to go for this record. And he started in in the middle of May, um, kept going, and almost a week into it, he faced allegations that he wasn't running the whole way. He was putting in these uh, times and mileage that just didn't make sense to a lot of respected ultra marathoners. Mm -hmm. And they were doing the math, and they were saying, you know, this guy would put in like 70, 80-mile days, multiple days in a row, and maintain sometimes a pace of faster than seven minutes per mile. And it all came to a head when um, Rob reached Kansas and a runner went out to meet him in the middle of the night just to run with him, but didn't, he saw the van, but didn't see Rob running. Saw the van moving, but not Rob running. Yeah. Yeah. And so after people started watching him a little bit more, the wheels kind of fell off for him. He didn't finish. No, he didn't. And in fact, um, a group of ultra runners went out and followed him 24-7 just to watch him run. And they kind of made friends with him. They ran some miles with him, but they had eyes on him um, from that Kansas incident until for about five days. And he uh, noticeably slowed down his mileage, his pace, and it kind of broke him a little bit. And well, he, he broke his foot. Yeah, he, he, did, he did break his foot, and that's why he had to drop out um, near Indianapolis. So why are we talking about this now is that um – people started looking into this, specifically the the group that was sponsoring him for this run. Yeah, so it's the um, the compression gear company Skens, who really, they, they're pretty outspoken about corruption and cheating in sports. So when these allegations arose, they really wanted to clear this whole matter up. So they commissioned a, an independent study by um, two pretty respected academics, if you will. One is a professor at the University of Colorado. The other is an exercise physiologist based in Europe. Um, to look into whether or not Rob was cheating. And they uh, released their 101-page uh, yeah. investigation last week and concluded um, that there's no other plausible explanation other than that he received, uh, quote, unauthorized assistance, end quote. And that 101-page report was a great weekend reading. I really enjoyed looking through that. But, w- but there was one kind of smoking gun to all of this. So what was that? They were able to obtain Rob's um, original TomTom GPS files from his watch. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that gave them the uh, the cadence data, which is basically how many steps you take per minute. Yeah, and if you're like a regular runner, you're, you know, normal run, you're probably doing like 150 to 170 steps per minute. And that doesn't, and, and that's the same no matter how fast you're running mm-hmm. too, which is important to note. Um, so many of his runs, he was averaging... 40 steps per minute or less, maybe 20 steps, maybe five. Um, So they looked at all this data and realized that, yeah, he was likely in a moving vehicle for large chunks of his attempt. And you were able to speak with Robert Young after all this came out. What's his stance on this now? 
Yeah, I spoke with him for a while over the phone, and he uh, denies all allegations of wrongdoing. He does admit that maybe there were some mistakes made in the data recording, maybe that there were... um, uh, he left the watch in the van a few times, um, but he, he says that he ran the whole way. Um, so, yeah, it, it's come out. Uh, Skins has terminated their contract with him. And, uh, you know, moving forward, he's told me that he's not done running. He would like to attempt this again, maybe next summer. It's a super hard record to actually even go after or yeah. even break. But one guy actually... Again, is on record for this right now, and we're keeping an eye on him as well. Yeah, um, Pete Kostelnik, he is a pretty respected ultra runner right now, is on pace to break this record. Currently, and as we record this, in the middle of Nebraska, averaging um, over 60 miles a day, he is uploading his live location to his website as well as all of his Strava data. So there really hasn't hasn't been any question that he's running the whole way or not. But um, he. Really, um, in the several attempts that have happened over the this year to break the record, seems like he's got the best shot. Well, so, we'll we'll keep an eye on him and keep you updated here on the kick and on runnersworld.com. Absolutely. Um, moving on to maybe not ultra running distances, but we'll just go down to marathon level. Um, yeah, just down to just marathon, marathon level. level. <laughs> um, so I was actually one of the 2,957 Boston qualifiers rejected from the race for 2017. Hashtag sad face emoji. Yeah. I mean, as upset as I am, at least it's not a hit on my credit card. So that's the one silver lining <laughs> is I don't have to pay for it. But um, because of the high demand, like the past several years, it's just gotten increasingly tougher. They have to move that cutoff time down this year. It was two minutes and nine seconds. That was actually... A little slower than so 2016. You had to be, to clarify, you had to be two minutes and nine seconds faster than your qualifying standard to make the cut. Yeah. So was, where were you at? I was only like a minute 40. Which which basically means that you should not have used the bathroom at like Yeah, or stop to play with the band at mile 17. You know, like, I just, I can't play Freebird for yeah, that long. Yeah, Freebird. Stairway to Heaven was fine. Yeah. Freebird, not okay. Um, important tip. Yeah, or I should learn to negative split a race for once in my life. I don't think I've ever done that yet. And it's actually like a cool contest now. Yeah, uh, Strava and New Balance have partnered up starting with the Chicago Marathon. Uh, If you negative split your marathon uh, this fall and upload it to Strava, New Balance will send you a free pair of shoes. So I should run like a six-hour first half. <laughs> there you <laughs> and go. just cruise on in from How there. worth it is the free pair I of shoes think that I think that might be in their guidelines that you can't do that, but, you know. The point is, is that you should pace your marathon very well and negative split, so you'll get a free pair of shoes if you do that. Yep. And we want to finish off with one final story. This is a kind of fun one that we found last week. The Arizona cross-country team, they competed about two weekends ago in Minnesota. Yes, in Um, Minnesota. And uh, they didn't make headlines for how they performed, but they made headlines the next day. So what happened there? So next morning, um, one of the runners, Collins Cabet, was uh, dropping some stuff off in the room where all their stuff was being stored. And a guy charges out of the room carrying some bags. So... Collins, who is an all-American 800-meter runner, <laughs> decides to give chase. Chases him down five flights of stairs. The rest of the team, who is eating breakfast across the street, sees uh, Collins and this guy having an altercation kind of out of the side door of the hotel. They all get up, and they start running 
after this guy. So suddenly, um, this alleged thief has an entire Division One cross-country team chasing him. So, one, was the guy, like, armed or anything, and did he get caught? So, he did have a pocket knife um, that he brandished, and that's why the uh, when I spoke to the team, they were like, we, we tried to keep our distance, but we wanted to let the guy know that we're faster than you, so we're, wherever you run, we're going to run behind you <laughs> and call the cops and make sure that we know where your location is. And mm-hmm. two, obviously he got caught. <laughs> um, yeah, this, apparently this guy was uh, was terrified as soon as he saw the team running after him, ended up giving back most of the stuff, and I think maybe it was on accident, gave away his own wallet <laughs> um, as the team kind of surrounded him. So a uh, great quote from a spokesperson from the Minnesota PD was, um, it's a lesson kind of for us all, never steal from a long-distance track runner because you will be caught. Yeah, so just a very, a very easy moral to that story. If you see an, an, an XC or cross-country on a bag, you probably don't want to steal it. Yeah. Cross-country runners were badass. <laughs> so, Kit, thanks for coming down and doing the kick again this week. Thank you, Brian. That's it for this week's show. Please do us a giant favor and leave us a rating and a review wherever you find your podcasts. We check them and read all the comments all the time because we want to keep making the best show possible. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World, and this week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy and Brian Dalek. Join us next week when we will explore just why mortal runners like us might want to shell out for a coach. So I'm going to try for the next two, but I think she's crazy. <laughs> There's no way. I think she's trying to kill me. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us.